This paper uh, explores the tensions within the transatlantic anti-slavery movement between the commercial aspects of literary celebrity Thank you. Uh, and the moral seriousness of a movement uh, in the eyes of whose supporters slavery was actually a mortal sin. It was a mortal sin that threatened not just the souls of the slave owners, but also the souls of the enslaved too. Uh, so therefore, they needed to be... Uh, all of them needed to be rescued uh, from this, this heinous uh, condition. Um, the paper explores this through looking at responses to Frederick Douglass and Harriet Beecher Stowe on their visits to Britain uh, in 1845 to 7 and 1853, respectively. Both Douglas and Stowe had to establish a balance between um, developing a voice of moral authority on this very serious subject of slavery, um, but also gratifying the desires of audiences whose interest in that subject, uh, while often very genuine, uh, was only part of their fascination with uh, them as individuals. Um, so in the process uh, of treading this line, um, both Stowe and Douglas had to contend with the expectations and prejudices uh, of Victorian audiences uh, with very particular ideas of the performance of race and gender, um, respectively. And this shaped uh, Douglas and Stowe's modes of self-representation. It shaped the responses of audiences to them, and it also shaped the criticisms levelled at them by hostile uh, commentators. Now, the British visits of both Douglas and Stowe were triggered by the publication of a book. The narrative uh, of the life of Frederick Douglass, in Douglass's case, published in 1845, uh, recounting uh, Douglass's life in slavery and his escape from uh, slavery, and Uncle Tom's Cabin, uh, published uh, by Harriet Beecher Stowe in the United States um, in 1852. Now, for Douglass, uh, the comparative success of the publication of his uh, narrative, which sold 5,000 copies in its uh, first few months, uh, which for a slave narrative was, was pretty big sales, uh, had the potential to draw down on his head uh, a lot of trouble. Uh, it had the pot potential to come to the um, cognizance of his former owners, for instance, uh, who would still see Douglas as their property and might make attempts to uh, recapture him. Uh, so this was part of the thinking uh, behind his visit um, to the United Kingdom, uh, the idea he would be safe there from uh, those who wanted to return him uh, to slavery. But also he could do useful work there. He could help to educate uh, British and Irish audiences uh, on the evils of American slavery uh, and to reinvigorate British anti-slavery uh, feeling. Of course, British slaves had been emancipated in 1833. There was then a sort of follow-up campaign uh, to get rid of the system of apprenticeship, uh, which had replaced slavery and was uh, seen by many as a continuation of slavery by other means, uh, and that was abolished in 1838. So there was a need uh, then to, to refocus British anti-slavery uh, activity uh, beyond the United Kingdom and, it, and its possessions, and particularly towards uh, the Americas. But from the start, Douglas's mission to promote the cause was bound up with a need to promote himself. 
Lecture tours were expensive businesses, and the resources of anti-slavery societies were often slender. Uh, Douglas therefore had to sell tickets to his meetings, and in a crowded marketplace he was competing for attention with better-known men and uh, with other causes, including at this time, of course, in 1845 to, to 7, Chartism, and uh, in particular, I think, the Anti-Corn Law League, which was reaching it at the height uh, of the campaign, uh, in particularly from the autumn of 1845, when, when uh, Lord John Russell and, and Sir Robert Peel come out in, in, in uh, favour of uh, repealing the Corn Laws. Um, for similar reasons, though, uh, Douglas was also anxious to promote sales of the UK edition of his narrative. Um, so there is a, a commercial element to the tour right from the beginning. So it's no surprise that the two things that Douglas did after first arriving uh, in Liverpool uh, in 1845 were first of all to involve himself in a very public controversy in order to grab uh, some attention. Uh, and the second thing he did was to take ship for Dublin to visit his publisher, Richard D. Webb, uh, who was bringing out the UK edition uh, of uh, the narrative. Now, the controversy is described in a second autobiography that, that Douglas published in 1855, My Bondage and My Freedom, uh, which apparently involved an exchange of letters with the newspapers regarding his treatment aboard the Cambria steamer uh, from America to Liverpool by certain southern gentlemen who had reacted violently to the captain's invitation uh, to Douglas to address uh, the passengers on the subject of American slavery. Uh, they threatened to throw him overboard, and they only backed down when the captain threatened to clap them all in irons for the remainder of the journey. Um, Douglas later claimed in, in uh, My Bondage and My Freedom that this incident uh, brought me at once before the British public, awakening something like a national interest in me and securing me an audience. Or did it? Um, I've looked... Uh, in the British Library online sort of sample for traces of this controversy, and I can't find any. Uh, despite the fact that that sample includes the Liverpool Mercury, which was the, would have been the local uh, sort of liberal newspaper in the town where, where he'd landed. Um, I'm not saying it didn't happen, uh, but if it's buried in the newspapers, it's buried quite deeply. And the idea that it brought in before a national audience is a, is a, a complete ag exaggeration. Um, at best, it was a very uh, sort of local affair. What is certain, uh, I mean, I am hoping to, to find it eventually. I haven't yet sort of managed to trawl through all of the, the Liverpool newspapers that, uh, on microfilm uh, to, find, to try and find it. But what is certain is that Douglas made good use of this um, in his subsequent lectures. Uh, he did bring this, this contro the Cambrian controversy out in his early lectures uh, as he sort of started to tour. Uh, through Ireland and, and beyond. My own feeling is that the account in My Bondage and My Freedom, written nearly ten years later, was in part a way of downplaying the extent to which Douglas was dependent uh, when he arrived in the UK on abolitionist networks created by his then friend and collaborator, William Lloyd Garrison. By the 1850s, Garrison and Douglas were at daggers drawn. They had rival abolitionist newspapers, uh, and there was a lot of very heated uh, controversy uh, between them. Um, so this may explain why he, he was anxious to kind of distance himself from those Garrisonian networks uh, later on. 
The claim was also of a piece, though, with another claim that he made in the same book, that he was indebted more for his prominence to the activities of his enemies than to his own skill or the assistance uh, of his friends. But this beguilingly modest claim plays down, uh, on the one hand, Douglas's abilities as a self-publicist, and on the other, the great sensation that he caused in the United Kingdom as an articulate black man. Uh, Douglas's letters back from England were uh, notable for their excitement at the absence of colour prejudice that he encountered, Uh, although, again, there's no doubt that he exaggerates this for an American audience. Underlying this exhilaration, though, there's a hint of unease at the fascination that is caused by his colour. In one much-quoted letter, the mixed-race Douglas claims, I find I am hardly black enough for British taste. But by keeping my hair as woolly as possible, back to hair again, uh, I make out to pass for at least half a Negro uh, at any rate. And there's there's some parallels here with the the performance of of, um, blackness as discussed earlier in Matthew's paper, which is quite interesting. But if Douglas played too much on this, uh, there was the danger of him becoming uh, seen in the tradition of human exotics being shown off to the curious gaze of the public, Uh, something uh, which Douglas's Dublin experiences had made him uh, a bit uncomfortable about. Um, Richard D. Webb writes back to America complaining uh, that Douglas had been rude to his cousin and his niece, Uh, but these women had taken Douglas around uh, Dublin uh, as one of uh, Douglas's biographers have put it on a leash to show him off to the, uh, um, uh, you know, to the, to the, to the, to the town. Um, so it's not really surprising that, that Douglas was a little bit resentful uh, of this patronising treatment. Well, we see a similar line being walked only a few years later by the Ojibwa Indian Kalgar Gigalbo, if I pronounced that right, uh, which was described in a recent article by Cecilia Morgan. Like Douglas, um, he was also struggling to establish himself as a credible spokesman for his people while simultaneously being anxious to portray himself as a bona fide Victorian gentleman. So non-white visitors to to Britain um, were being put in this awkward position, um, really. So, to counter this tendency, Douglas used a similar strategy to that used by William Lloyd Garrison on his first visit to uh, Britain in 1833, visibly associating himself with other prominent reformers and picking some very public fights. In Ireland, he obtained the the support of the the two most famous men in Ireland, uh, Father Matthew, the temperance priest in Cork, uh, and Daniel O'Connell, the liberator of the Irish Catholics, and uh, it was O'Connell who dubbed uh, Douglas the Black O'Connell, um, which is, is the title of a recent book, actually, on, on Douglas's Irish tour. In Belfast, Douglas first encountered the controversy over the Free Church of Scotland's acceptance of donations from southern slave owners to pay for its new churches. Um, the, the Wee Frees, as they're known, uh, had just seceded, of course, from the Church of Scotland in the Great Disruption in 1843. The Church of Scotland had all the real estate, and they needed to build themselves some new uh, churches. Uh, so they embarked on this huge fundraising tour, and it didn't seem like they were too picky about who they accepted uh, money from. Douglas put himself at the head of the movement, which demanded that the Free Church send back the money. And this became the catchphrase of the campaign. It's the slogan that Douglas uh, famously carved into the grass in Prince's Street Gardens uh, during his stay in Edinburgh. 
Now, these kinds of high-profile publicity events, if you'd like to call them that, uh, together with the favourable reviews of his narrative, which began to appear in the London press in autumn 1845, were not always well received by Douglas's abolitionist colleagues. Uh, and Richard D. Webb, who seems to be a, a bit of a stirrer in the uh, anti-slavery movement, actually, um, went so far as to read Douglas a letter from Maria Weston Chapman, one of Garrison's close uh, closest collaborators, in which she suggested that Douglas was using his lecture tours and sales of his book for his own pecuniary gain rather than for the support of the cause. This was an accusation that was levelled at, at um, a number of black abolitionists in Britain over the course of the 1840s and 1850s, but not usually by their own friends and supporters. It's usually the opponents of anti-slavery that are making these accusations. And the classic example is Henry Box Brown, whose tours uh, involved reprising his eponymous mode of escape from slavery. It escaped hidden in a box and then sort of escaped later. Um, uh, at one point uh, during his tour of Yorkshire, he had himself sent by rail in his box from Bradford to Leeds uh, and then emerging in front of his delighted audience. <laughs> Um, the serious-minded accused Brown of turning anti-slavery into mere spectacle and bringing the cause into disrepute. And this, in turn, was also allied to fears that the paying public might be taken in by frauds and impostors, uh, which is another reason why the Garrison connection was important to Douglas, because he brought with him all these letters of recommendation and endorsement from Garrison and Garrison's friends. Uh, and there were accusations when he was in Belfast that he was a fraudster and he had to kind of defend himself against that. Chapman's comments neatly illustrate the Garrisonians' unease, though, about Douglas's increasing independence. And her ideas on the subject owed a lot to a very snide letter from Webb claiming that the rapturous reception Douglas received in Edinburgh had turned his head. As a consequence of the stir he has made there, the people of the highest rank in that eminently aristocratic and conceited metropolis contend for his company, adding revealingly that Douglas would be totally unmanageable after this experience. At this point, uh, reading these sorts of uh, letters and accounts of Douglas's talk, um, it brings to mind um, the parallel with uh, the controversy a few years earlier about the Northumbrian heroine Grace Darling, who at one point seemed to be in danger of being corrupted by the public attention that she received. Uh, and there was a famous invitation from Batty's Circus in Edinburgh for her to appear in person, which drew down lots of shock and horror from the great and the good. Uh, so this, this temptation to exploit fame for commercial ends, whether the, the ends of the individual or the ends of other people wanting to, uh, to take advantage. And just as the lighthouse keeper's daughter needed the, uh, the uh, paternal intervention of the Duke of Northumberland to guide her around the pitfalls of her celebrity, the black ex-slave required the firm guiding hand of white abolitionists to save him from his weakness for flattery but both were assumed to be incapable of fully realised public agency. Moving on to Stowe, a very different set of pitfalls lay in wait for her. Unlike Douglas, Stowe had no need to make a name on her arrival in Britain. Her name had already been made by the extraordinary novel that she published uh, in 1852, pirate editions of which began to circulate in Britain within months. And because there was no transatlantic uh, copyright agreements, uh, Stowe didn't make a penny on, on the British editions which came out. 
Um, by the end of the year, there were apparently no fewer than 11 stage adaptations of Uncle Tom's Cabin in circulation in Britain, uh, as well as a number of pirate editions of the book. So unlike Douglas, even before she arrived, Stowe could be firmly placed in an established lineage of writers with transatlantic reputations, uh, as explored uh, recently by Brenda Weber in her book Women and Literary Celebrity in the 19th Century. As her publisher Richard Bentley put it, was there ever such a furore as England has made of this lady? I suppose when she arrives, she will be lionised from John O'Groats to Land's End. Stowe herself pre uh, presented a reflective account of this reception in her book Sunny Memories of Foreign Lands, the travelogue that she wrote uh, when she returned to the United States. Uh, Sunny Memories is notable both for the insights it provides into the production of fame in the 19th century and as a complex piece of self-representation. Uh, and it's quite instructive to read it alongside the recently published journals of Stowe's brother Charles Beecher, who accompanied her on the tour. Uh, and marvelled at a reception which he uh, thought outstripped that even of the Lind mania, which he'd witnessed at first hand in the United States. Like Douglas, Stowe made use of what might be termed the mutuality of fame. Uh, just as today's celebrities gain kudos by associating with other celebrities on the red carpet and elsewhere, uh, their 19th century analogues were eager to be seen or otherwise connected with those whose reputations matched or exceeded their own. Before she embarked for Britain, Stowe deliberately sought out the poet Longfellow, specifically, it seems, so that she could tell English audiences that she'd met him. Uh, and while she was uh, travelling, she also uh, met uh, Thomas Macaulay uh, and other literary figures. She found her likeness in demand from the best portrait painters and engravers and clearly enjoyed the fact that sculptor Edward Richardson's studio was, quote, quite a gallery of notabilities, almost all the distinguishes of the day having set to him, uh, sat to him. So I certainly had the satisfaction of feeling myself in good company. Now, as well as hobnobbing with the great and the good, or failing that, those who'd sculpted or painted the great and the good, um, Stowe was also keen to establish her abolitionist credentials. She was, after all, riding on the, uh, the crest of an anti-slavery wave, partly of her own making. She had both the advantage and disadvantage of having been outside the mainstream of American anti-slavery activity. It was an advantage because she could present herself as being above the internecine squabbles um, that marred uh, the movement through the 1840s and 50s uh, in a way that Douglas, with his Garrisonian baggage, had not been able to uh, on his first visit. It was a disadvantage because she lacked credibility with seasoned veterans of the movement who were rightly sceptical of the raised interest in anti-slavery that her visit brought. Like Douglas before her, she made contact with the grandees of reform, men like Joseph Sturge, who led the, the anti-apprenticeship um, campaign, uh, Richard Cobden, the leader of the Anti-Corn Law League, uh, and Leos Kaschutz, the Hungarian revolutionary, uh, who'd been rapturously received by the public in 1850, but by 1853 was living in genteel poverty uh, in London. He warned her against the, the fickleness of British uh, public opinion and, and, and uh, enthusiasm. And in particular, she made a pilgrimage to see Thomas Clarkson's widow coming away with a lock of the old campaigner's hair, making a, a connections with that earlier heroic age of, of the anti-slavery movement is very important. When Garrison comes over, he, he gets um, Wilberforce's endorsement, and then when Wilberforce conveniently dies when he's over in Britain, he makes sure he's seen at the funeral as well. So 
uh, this, this is all quite important uh, and plays well back in the United States. Much of the commentary on Stowe's tour is focused on the way that she paid lip service to the fiction of separate spheres. She never addressed mixed meetings, but allowed her brother and husband to act as mouthpieces, while she then went on to address private women's meetings afterwards. Now, of course, the definition of the latter as private is is self-fiction. Several of these meetings were quite large, and they usually comprised a good cross-section of the urban elite of whichever town uh, she happened to be in at the time. Uh, And as one of her biographers, Joan Hedrick, has argued, proceeding in this way allowed her to move back and forth between the private and public realms and to have an influence in both. Um, But Stowe's reception wasn't entirely adulatory. An infamous review in the Times in 1852, described at length by uh, Audrey Fish in the Cambridge uh, Companion to Harriet Beecher Stone, challenged Stowe's credentials as an authority on her subject, almost entirely on the grounds of her sex, it might be said, and secondly, her mode of bringing them to the public's attention through her novel. It was insinuated that she exaggerated the horrors of slavery for mere effect and that this was a lazy appeal to the emotions rather than a considered uh, appeal to the intellect. During a visit in 1853, the Times returned to the offensive Its reporters discovered that the silk gowns Stowe had commissioned for the grand soirees in her honour at Stafford House and elsewhere were being made by sweated labour. Along with its own attacks, it published a letter from a a dressmaker drawing attention to the horrific conditions in the trade. Uh, And this is a peculiarly gendered uh, version of the accusation often levelled at British abolitionists that they should concentrate their efforts on liberating the so-called white slaves at home before turning their attention to the black slaves overseas. Now, while disallowed by her sex from responding to such criticism directly from the platform, these controversies allowed Stowe to offer effective reposts in the medium that she knew best, print. In 1853, in response to questions and accusations about the factual basis of Uncle Tom, she produced the key to Uncle Tom's cabin, Uh, an exhaustive collection of source material for the different episodes in her book. Uh, As Catherine Gleadle has argued in her recent book, Borderline Citizens, uh, establishing expertise in a subject was one way women could achieve public recognition in Victorian Britain, Florence Nightingale being only the most famous example of that. The key definitively established Stowe as an expert on slavery. The publication of Sunny Memories in 1854 allowed further opportunities to respond to her detractors, including the Times. Seizing the opportunity to nail the white slavery canard, Stowe did so with aplomb, noting that while some dressmakers were clearly able to stand up for themselves by writing letters to the Times, black slaves had no such recourse, being kept deliberately ignorant by their masters and banned by law from being taught how to read or write. So, to draw some conclusions, literature was an avenue by which an ex-slave and a middle-class white woman could intervene effectively in political debate on slavery, and it also provided an arena in which each could construct their uh, public persona. Scholars who've compared Douglas's narrative with his later autobiographies, particularly My Bondage and My Freedom, have noted a distinct shift in register relating to the work of self-construction and self-presentation that each was intended to achieve. Uh, Cynthia S. Hamilton has argued that the latter was uh, written more in the style of an exemplary life, 
marking the change in Douglas's standing uh, within abolition from a first-hand witness of slavery, uh, slavery's cruelty to an Emersonian representative man who through his own efforts had raised himself to a position where he could speak out on behalf of their oppressed brethren, but who also embodied the human potential of all African Americans. Through Uncle Tom's cabin, Harriet Beecher Stowe was able to uh, uh, achieve an astonishing mobilization of effect on behalf of slaves, temporarily uniting the fractured British anti-slavery movement in opposition to the Fugitive Slave Act of 1851. Fiction alone, though, is insufficient to protect Stowe from accusations of exaggeration and emotionalism. Instead, she was able to make use of what the celebrity theorist Robert Van Creeken refers to as her attention capital as a major international literary celebrity to then establish her credentials as an anti-slavery expert via the key to Uncle Tom's cabin and to answer some of her critics and thank her admirers through the acceptably feminine mode of the travelogue in Sunny Memories from Distant Lands. However, both Stowe and Douglas struggled to exercise an influence on the British anti-slavery movement and on British perceptions of race and slavery once they'd returned to the United States. When Douglas returned to Britain in 1859, he found it sadly changed from his partly imagined memory of the colourblind utopia of the 1840s. Negative stereotyping of blacks, he found, was much more common. The decline of the largest uh, British sugar colony, Jamaica, had been laid at the door of supposedly lazy freed slaves in racist tracts like Thomas Carlyle's occasional discourse on the nigger question. While the tours of so-called Ethiopian minstrel groups, uh, American blackface performers, made blacks at, least a, 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 at the very least good-humoured figures of fun. These influences had been uh, apparent even before Stowe arrived in the country. They were prevalent in George Cruikshank's illustrations to one of the most popular pirate editions of Uncle Tom, undermining the decorum and agency of several of the black characters in the process. In the end, both literature and celebrity proved equally unstable as effective media of political communication, and despite the efforts of Stowe and Douglas, it would take a civil war in America and Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation to reunite British anti-slavery opinion. Thank you. Thank you.